work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we ask for the um, wisdom and ability to understand your scriptures. And we pray, Father, for humility to receive them and to think through the application of them. And we pray as we consider this issue of promises that you would uh, strengthen our faith. I imagine many of us are here this morning with our own um, burdens to carry, our own sense of things taking too long, maybe our own sense of just things seeming like they are derailed. So we pray, Father, as we study this scripture, that you would remind us again, or maybe teach us anew today, that we can trust your word. We can trust your promises uh, even when it, thing, it seems to our mind and our eyes that things are not going well. Uh, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And to help us look through our text today, I want to approach it a little bit differently. I want to sort of think of it as a play or maybe a movie where there are scenes, you know, something plays out and then sort of it just goes to the next one. So I want us to think of our text today through four scenes, the unfolding of four scenes. And scene one is verses one through five, and it's simply this, Moses meets Pharaoh. The story opens, scene one, Moses meets Pharaoh. Now, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh. They say, hey, the Lord, the God of Israelites has sent us with a message, and here it is. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, if you've been with us and you've seen Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, you may look at that request and think, that doesn't really sound like what we heard back in chapter 3 and chapter 4. What, when God comes to Moses, he tells him, and this is sort of pop quiz from my sermon a few weeks ago, that he's going to do three things. I won't ask you to name them, that's fine. Uh, he's going to deliver the Israelites from slavery. He is going to plunder the Egyptians, and he's going to lead them to a promised land. So this is big picture stuff. Like Moses, people, we are heading out. And then when Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, they ask this question that seems kind of smaller than that, right? The, the request is, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. It's not let them go forever. It's let them go for this short time. Now, to understand this, we need to think about the culture in these days. And I think they had something right back then. If you were to ask someone a giant favor, you didn't want to just sort of throw it out there to begin with. What you wanted to do was to start small. So you start with a little thing, and when they said yes to that and did it, and you say, okay, well, now can you go a little bit further and help me some more? So you don't just roll into town and say, hey, um, we're taking everybody for good. No, you would start with something smaller. And so rather than saying we're leading everybody out, it's let them go for a few days. Just let them go out into the wilderness, make sacrifices to Yahweh, and we'll come back. But do you notice how even something so simple is met with immediate rejection? Pharaoh doesn't even think about it. He said, no, nope, not going to do it. 
and he rejects Yahweh's authority. Look at verse 1 again. No, actually, this is verse 2. Do you notice how two times Pharaoh says something along the lines of, I don't know who this Yahweh is. Do you see that in verse 2? Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and not let Israel go? And then immediately says again, I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So twice he says he doesn't know him, but it's in two different ways. And I want to try to show you this. The first time he says it, it's like not being familiar with it, right? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Remember, Pharaoh is Egyptian. They have their own gods. Moses and Aaron say, hey, this God uh, called Yahweh wants you to let his people go. Pharaoh says, who's this Yahweh guy? Who is this guy? Some foreign God I don't know about? Why would I listen to him? But then notice the way he says it in the second time. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. I think the second time isn't him saying again, well, I just don't know who this is. I think what Pharaoh is saying is, I don't recognize this God. I don't recognize this Yahweh that you say is in charge and has called you to lead the people. And he says, moreover, I will not let Israel go. Remember, this is Pharaoh. He's thinking, I'm the king of Egypt. People don't come and tell me what to do. I tell people what to do. So I don't recognize some Yahweh character that you say you met in the burning bush experience in the wilderness. No thanks. I will not listen. Pharaoh's response shows his arrogance. I mean, I guess it's understandable. You're the most powerful person in the kingdom. You probably have a sense of entitlement there. But his arrogance says, no, I don't listen to anybody or anyone. I don't recognize any authority outside of my own. He is really the epitome of what Paul will write later in Romans chapter 1. He's talking about the wrath of God being revealed, and he talks about people, and he says, uh, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Pharaoh has a sense of understanding that there is this God over all of creation, Paul will talk about, and yet he does not honor him as such. He says, I don't, I don't have to listen to anybody. I'm Pharaoh. I make the rules in this kingdom. I live my own life, and he will not submit to any authority. Now, I'll say this. The, the text today is not primarily about submitting to God's authority. But I think it would benefit us to take a moment to consider uh, this as an application point. We will see in the story Pharaoh repeatedly hardens his heart. He will not listen to God. He will not submit to the authority of God. Uh, All the plagues are coming and all of the things that would have been, I think, clear indication that God is in charge here. And every time Pharaoh is going to say, no, I'm the Pharaoh. I don't submit to anybody. We're going to see that time and time again. And as a result, he's going to experience the wrath of God. And the same goes for us today if we are like Pharaoh. Well, you know, we, we joke often about trying to sort of read ourselves into the stories. We want to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm the Moses character. That would be me. I would do that. But how many of us actually would identify more with Pharaoh in this story? Maybe think about your life prior to coming to know Christ. Did you have this attitude of, Nobody tells me what to do. I'm not submitting to some list of rules that I have to follow. I'm not following along this religion. Everybody says you have to get in line and do this or that. No, I live my life. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. I do what I want. Is that you? Was that you? Maybe that's you today. If you're here and you don't know Christ, maybe you're watching online. Are you the sort of person that says, I'm not not yielding to anybody. Nobody tells me what to do. 
If that's you, then Paul's words later in Romans 1 should be alarming because he talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against a certain kind of person. He says it's the person who suppresses the truth of God and refuses to worship him. Paul's very clear. We all have this knowledge, this basic knowledge of God's supremacy over us, and yet we refuse to submit. Pharaoh does this, and he will suffer. So I just wanted to take a moment to ask us if we are like Pharaoh in this story. If when we hear the gospel or we hear preaching about the sovereignty of God, is our response, who is the Lord? Not a question of, who is that? I want to learn. But the Pharaoh sense of, who is this character that says he's in charge of me? If that's you this morning, I want to caution you and challenge you. And remind you that the scriptures are very clear that the first step toward peace with God and forgiveness of sin is humility. It's a humble submission to God's authority. It's us saying, I recognize that I am not God. And I am under his authority. That's why James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want to be saved, you cannot be saved and be equal with God. The only hope of salvation is to humble ourselves and receive it from the Lord. But the Pharaoh is hard-hearted, and he will not bow. He will not yield to anyone. Uh, Moses was told that Pharaoh would not listen initially. I don't think this would have been very surprising. I think Moses probably walked out of this meeting saying, well, that's what we expected. It wasn't a surprise. But after he leaves, there's this decision made by Pharaoh that I think Moses did not see coming. That leads us to scene two of the story. Pharaoh punishes the Israelites. Verses six through 19. There's there's this situation here. It It is sad how Pharaoh responds, but we see further into his heart. And in his mind, if the Israelites are coming and saying, hey, we'd like to take a few days and go out into the desert and worship, if that's, the, if that's the case, if they have enough time for that, then clearly they have too much time on their hands. That's Pharaoh's thinking. If you've got time to go out there and worship, then, man, you must not have a lot of things to do. We must be taking it easy on you. Uh, you may have heard people use the saying, uh, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean, right? You have time to sit around, you've got time to do stuff. Well, for Pharaoh, it was, uh, if you have time to worship, you have time to work. If you've got time to go out in the desert for a weekend to spend with the Lord, then clearly we can add to your workload. And so in order to keep them busy and controlled, he decides to increase their workload. You notice this again in verses 6 through 19, and he talks all about this making bricks and, and straw and all these things. Their task was to make bricks. That's what they've been doing. And in their work, Uh, Right, The people bring them some mud and clay, and some people bring them some straw, and they put it all together, and they make bricks. And there was a certain quota of bricks that they had to make. Well, now Pharaoh has changed the rules. He says, okay, well, we're not going to provide you the straw anymore. You're going to have to actually go and get your own straw, bring that back, and make bricks. And we realize that that's double the work, but we're not going to half your quota. No, we're going to double your work, but we're going to expect the same number of bricks every day. You can imagine the the panic that would set in. So I'm going to have to do double the work, same amount of time, same expectations. This is is not, hey, work a little harder each day. This is a massive ramping up of the labors that the Egyptians will have to serve in. 
double the work, same amount of time. I know we've probably all been in situations where we take on more responsibilities. Maybe it's here at church, you take on a, a volunteer role, or maybe at work, you know, someone's sick or quits, and so you have to sort of pick up things that you weren't doing. But unfortunately, you don't also get extra hours in a day. Have you noticed how that works? You take on more stuff, but you still just have 24 hours in a day. Now, take that here to Egypt. You know, my quota is i got to make 100 bricks a day, but now I've got to take the four hours it takes me to go get straw first, bring that back, then make my 100 bricks. Now, this would have been shocking news, and in fact, we'll see it in a moment, uh, that it certainly was that. So as we think about it, if the Israelites' condition was bad before Moses and Aaron rolled into town, which it was, uh, it's now gotten worse. Because now they've drawn the attention and ire of Pharaoh himself. Right? Maybe you've learned this. It's never good when the boss is looking at you. Right? you just under the radar. Do my job. No extra looking over here. But now what's happened is Pharaoh's attention is on them. I think Pharaoh probably just sort of busy doing his Pharaoh things and the people doing their work. Now he started to look at them and said, clearly you guys just don't have enough stuff to do. Asking for time off? Well, we can fix that. And so he makes it worse. Was this how things were supposed to turn out for Moses? I don't think Moses would have thought that. Uh, he's, he knew that Pharaoh would be resistant. We saw that in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But he almost certainly didn't expect to be the cause of more punishment for his people. The whole point of going to Egypt because his, his people were suffering. He gets there, and he just makes it worse. The chapter begins with this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. I think it would have been kind of awkward. Because I think Moses sort of rolls in like, this is, this is going to be a showdown. I'm here with a message from the Lord. And Pharaoh says, nah. And you just sort of walk away. But I think that the next encounter was even more uncomfortable. All right, this is scene three of the story. The Israelites condemn Moses. Look again at verse 20. Verse 20 and 21. Okay, now the arrangement of the passage indicates that there's been some time that has passed here. Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh, let my people go. He says no. They leave. Pharaoh comes up with the idea for more work. And so an amount of time has passed. We don't know how much, maybe days, maybe weeks or months. And things have gotten worse for the Israelites. So now they say, look, we're going to go and ask Pharaoh, what is going on here? What did we do to make things worse? And so they do that. They go and they ask him um, in verse 15 through 19, and they inquire what he's done to them. And what they find out is that two characters named Moses and Aaron uh, came in and said that the people should go out into the desert for a time of worship. And so clearly they have too much time on their hands. Now, these would have been the same Israelites, right, that just prior to this, Moses has come to and said, hey, guys, I'm here with great news. God has met me in the wilderness. Check out these cool signs I can do. He's going to deliver you. And everybody's happy and they're worshiping. Then things go south. Pharaoh, what's been going on? Well, these Moses and Aaron characters came in here, and so it sounded like you guys needed more work. Promises derailed, maybe? The story going where we wouldn't think it would go? So they leave the meeting with Pharaoh, verse 21, and look at what they say to Moses. The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants 
and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Probably not the message Moses wanted to hear. Rolls into town to deliver the Israelites, would have appreciated a thank you, uh, an attaboy, and yet he gets condemnation from the Israelites. For the foreman here, they're clinging to this promise of, hey, he says God's going to deliver us. Things have gotten worse, so what's happened in the meantime? Well, it's Moses and Aaron. They've done something wrong. Maybe they didn't get the message right. Maybe they offended Pharaoh. Whatever it was the case, it's got to be their fault that we're suffering more because they're the only thing that's changed. Moses and Aaron roll into town, and now we've got double the work. It seems that the foremen here, these are the Israelites, had the same sort of mentality that Moses had. And And this is what it is. Surely God's promises of deliverance don't include some suffering along the way. That seems to be the thinking here that if God says, hey, I'm going to deliver you now, well then, man, pack your bags because we're rolling out. And there's not going to be any hiccups along the way, any bumps along the way. Certainly things aren't going to get worse because God says he's going to deliver us. And so now that things have gotten worse, something's gone wrong here. If God is really going to deliver his people, then he'll do it right away. This is the, the illustration earlier of someone says, I'm on my way. And you think, okay, great. That means you're in the car and you're coming. If God says, I'm going to deliver you, then I expect we're going. We're going tonight. And, but that's not what's happened. If he says he's on his way, he must mean right now. But is that how God always works? Well, we know enough from Scripture and probably from our own personal experience that that's not how God always works. God's promises to to do something, it may not be as rapidly or as quickly as we think. It will almost certainly not uh, keep us from extra suffering along the way. Has God promised us that we won't suffer? Actually, he's told us the, the opposite of that. We will. And again, I think it's providential that we studied the book of Job prior to the beginning of the book of Exodus. Uh, Because it's prepared us to study this issue of suffering. And if you remember from our Job study, one of the things we've learned is that serving the Lord does not preclude us from suffering. I mean, we saw this in the person of Job. Job says he was blameless and upright, and yet the whole story is him suffering mightily for the Lord. And what we learn is that being right with God Being in God's plan, we talk about, you know, I don't want to be outside the plan of God, as if you could, but being in the plan of God does not then preclude us from having to suffer along the way. And we can be like Moses sometimes where we think, boy, God has promised this thing, so it must be happening right now and things are going to get better. But that doesn't always work that way. Many times we find that things will get worse before God answers our prayer. If the Israelites were suffering more, then surely God's plan had derailed. Something's gone wrong here. And so that leads us here to scene four. The first three scenes progress as we might expect. Pharaoh says no. Yep, increases suffering for the Israelites. That one was a little outside of what we might have expected. And now the Israelites get mad. Yeah. And then it's verse 22 and 23, scene four. Moses questions God. This is really where the story is going. Everything has been happening so far, somewhat according to plan, minus the extra suffering. And when things go south like that, we have this moment where Moses, the man of God, the 
the guy that saw the burning bush, the guy that's going to do all the cool things in Exodus later on with the Ten Commandments and the parting of the waters and all the stuff. He has this moment where he just he, he comes to God. In fact, verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord. He just, he's, he's been doing all these things that are so terrible, and he just turns to the Lord. And what does he say? Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Why am I even here, God? Verse 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, okay, which he didn't want to do in the first place, but he finally does, okay. Uh, since I came here, he has done evil to this people. And then if you're an underliner, this is the phrase for us. And you have not delivered your people at all. God, why am I here? Because I've done nothing but make it worse, and we are not one inch closer to the door in this place. I came here. I didn't want to, but I did. I gave your message, and all I've done now is make everybody mad at me with all of their extra work. Now, we need to take a moment to think here and remind ourselves of what has been told to Moses prior to this. Let me just give you a reminder. What exactly had God told Moses when he called him into service? First of all, he said in Exodus 3, verses 19 and 20, that Pharaoh would not listen. Okay, that, that's checked. That has happened. We're fine with that. He was also told him that he would actually harden Pharaoh's heart, Exodus 4, verse 21. So we're fine with that. We can see that. God also said he would do mighty signs such that Pharaoh would let the people go, Exodus 3, verse 20. So I haven't quite got that one yet. So everything starts out according to plan. Moses says, fine, I'll go in. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh says, no, okay, everything's going according to plan. But what should have been next? Fire and brimstone. Light the place up, amazing signs and wonders, just like that. And Pharaoh says, okay, okay, sorry, sorry, you can take them, go for it. But that's not what happens. Everything has gone downhill after that first meeting with Pharaoh. And instead of deliverance, Moses says, God, you've brought more evil onto these people. You've brought more suffering rather than any notion of deliverance to get out of here. So what was Moses thinking would happen? Uh, his response here tells us. Let me read you this quote from one commentator. I think says it very well. He says, by concluding his prayer with, quote, you have not rescued your people at all, Moses showed what he'd actually been thinking. He'd been thinking that God's promised deliverance would occur relatively quickly and would not involve setbacks or disappointments. How many of us often think that way? We may find ourselves looking at a promise in Scripture, and, and we want to we believe that, well, that's going to happen relatively quickly, based on what we think of as quickly, and certainly isn't going to involve any detours or setbacks or bumps along the way. We know that this is what Moses was thinking by the way he responds. Because notice, he doesn't respond with anything like, God, um, things don't look right. What, what's actually happening here? He doesn't ask for clarification. He does not ask for understanding. He does not ask for a better insight into the bigger picture of what God is doing. He just says, you haven't done anything, God. All I've done is make it worse, and we are not any closer to being out of here. 
I wonder if we're like Moses at times. How do we respond when the promises of God seem delayed? Anybody ever have a frustration where it seems like you make a really good plan and then God just seems to not obey it? Ever have those moments? You spend many hours coming up with it. You think through it and you put all the, th- all the things together and you say, this is a great plan. And then God just says, no, I'm going to do something else. I have those moments. I try my best to get God in line, but he just seems to do his own thing. That's just how it works sometimes. Because he operates according to his plan. And we look at things and we say, God, you're, you're taking too long. I've been praying about this thing for years, maybe decades even, and nothing's happened. Do we grow impatient? Do we, do we be like Moses and we say, God, you, you haven't done anything yet. All my life has just been falling apart around me, and I haven't seen anything that you've done yet. Do we blame God for not being faithful? Do we abandon our faith and just give up? Our story today shows that Moses is just like all of us. I know we, we tend to sort of put these Old Testament characters sometimes on a pedestal and to say they were so holy and righteous and loved the Lord so much, but they were just like us. They were exactly like us. How many of us have felt like God's plans either weren't going fast enough or weren't going the way we think they should go? I think all of us. God, if I were doing it, here's how I would do it. I certainly would take, it would go faster, and I would do it this way. But that's not what God is doing. We may be confident that God will do something good, but the continued presence of suffering makes us think that maybe the plan has come off the rails. God, surely your plan doesn't involve all this suffering. If I know that, God, there's the end that I'm headed toward, and I've got one road that's nice and smooth and it's fine and no suffering, and one road that's terrible with suffering, surely, God, you're going to take me this way. But more often than not, God chooses to take us the other way. We can forget that while God promises to work all things for our good, that's Romans 8, 28, which we should cling to, He does not promise to keep us from suffering while he works all things for our good. Furthermore, the presence of trials or sufferings and the slow nature of things doesn't mean that God's promises have failed or changed. This is one of the things I think I said in the the Job document that I sent out. the, The presence of suffering does not indicate the absence of God. We tend to operate with Well, things are going well, so God must be looking favorably upon me. And then when things go poorly, God must have left me. No, that's not at all right. God is with us, even in the suffering, and more often than not, chooses not to direct us around suffering, but to lead us and guide us and protect us through suffering. God had told Moses what it would happen. He told him exactly what would happen just not every detail. And when things didn't go as Moses thought would happen, he questions God, turns to God and says, God, what are you doing? I had in my mind, I was going to come in here, this was going to be a showdown, I was going to yell at Pharaoh, and we were going to walk out triumphantly, and none of that's happened. I imagine that Moses felt like giving up, maybe going back to the desert. Boy, I was, at least nobody was mad at me in the desert. 
when God's promises seem delayed or derailed, we can question what God is doing. I think it's okay to question God. Well, we might even lose hope along the way. But I want to show you from the scriptures that God can still be trusted. Even when our best estimation of things says, man, this thing's falling apart, God can still be trusted. And even when it seems like, boy, God, if I was doing it, I would have been done with this ages ago, God is still faithful. He can still be trusted. So I want to show you three places real quick. First of all, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. I don't hear many pages turning. Hopefully you haven't fallen asleep. 2 Samuel chapter 5. I want to show you these three places, three examples of people who had to wait for a long time or had to experience some bumps along the way and had the thought of maybe God's plan is just completely falling apart and yet God was faithful. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 5, if you're familiar with the story, uh, this is David being anointed as king of Israel. This is the last bit of his being um, crowned king of the full kingdom. Beginning in verse 1, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David, uh, to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. If you know the story of David, David is anointed king, which means the prophet comes and says, hey, God has said you're going to be king. But do you know what happened next? It wasn't a parade. It was not a party. And it was not a coronation. It was, depending on how you do the math, 15 to 20 years before David is finally anoint, uh, crowned king of Israel. Was it 15 to 20 years of just sitting on the beach waiting for the Lord? No, it was 15 to 20 years of fighting for his life, living and hiding in caves, uh, wives getting kidnapped, people getting killed left and right. Just go read 1 Samuel. Boy, talk about some story. Where was God? God, here I am. You've told me that I'm going to be king I'm like, this is exciting. I, was, I had sheep over here. Now I'm going to be king. I'm 10 years into this thing. I'm no closer to being king than I was. 10 years of fighting for my life and fleeing. Where is God in this? Well, God is actively working. And finally here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is made king. I imagine in the dark recesses of one of those caves, David had the thought of, Boy, I wonder if this promise from the Lord is worth holding on to. Sure doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. And I never thought I'd be stuck in this cave hiding away from Saul. The promises of God derailed and delayed. But God is faithful. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. Let me show you an example from the New Testament. Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> uh, this is the road to Emmaus. So timeline-wise, Christ has been crucified, he has been buried, and he has resurrected, but not everybody has seen him yet. So most people still think um, he has, they've maybe heard about his resurrection, but they haven't been uh, seen that and be proven. So Luke chapter 24, let me read for you verse 17. Remember, this is 
Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize who he is. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then the guy named Cleopas says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that, that happened? The only guy who doesn't know what's happened here in Jerusalem? Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Promises derailed. Expectations certainly not met. This, this Jesus who did these incredible signs and wonders, and we thought, man, this is the one to deliver Israel. He's going to finally bring us out from here. And then he was delivered up to be crucified. Promise of God, the expectation there seemingly derailed. And yet, what do we know from the story? Christ has been resurrected. He's talking to them. They'll figure that out later. He will, be, uh, he will ascend. Uh, sin is paid for. The, God is completely faithful. And in fact, actually, if you look back in the Gospels, Jesus had told them what would happen. Uh, I said, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be dead for three days. And then I'll rise again. But they didn't, that didn't fit in their expectations. That didn't fit in their, you know, so you've come to redeem us, but you're going to have to die first. You came to redeem us, but then we're actually going to have to suffer along the way. The promises of God, the expectations that we have for God, seemingly disrailed or derailed, but God is faithful. And then let me give you one more. Second Peter chapter 3. This is for us today because it squarely puts us in a position where we have to wait. Second Peter chapter 3. We talk often about waiting on the return of Christ, waiting with a sense of expectation. God has told us in the scriptures that Jesus will return for his people to uh, raise us up, to punish the wicked, to reward the righteous, to make all things new, to create a whole new world where we will live with God, all the hope that we see all the way to Revelation 21. But then we have reality. Verse 3 of chapter 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Where's this Jesus you say you've been waiting on? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You guys have been sitting around for 2,000 years waiting on this Jesus to come back, and he's not here. What are we going to do? Are we going to give up? Are we going to uh, abandon our hope in God? Certainly, it seems a promise delayed. How many of us have watched the news on, a, on an evening day and thought, man, I wish Jesus would just hurry up and come back. Things get worse. I don't see anything in the world getting better. Things falling apart, persecution and society crumbling and all these things. I'm waiting on Christ. Really? You've been waiting a long time. But look down at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's what? 
patient. Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's so easy to look and say, God, you're just, you're just taking too long for Jesus to come back. The, the promises of God, I know you're coming back. I didn't expect it to take this long. I didn't expect to have to live through all the terrible things that I've had to go through and all the sufferings before you would come back. Why are you taking so long? And, and Peter tells us here, actually, he's not taking so long. It seems that way for us in our small minds and, you know, finite selves. It seems like it's taking forever, but actually he's just being patient, graciously patient, such that all who would come to faith would not be left behind. Like Moses, like David, like the disciples, we may encounter trials in life that make us question the timing of God's plan, may even question the very nature of God's plan. God, I don't understand how this is even going to work out. We may think his promises are delayed or even derailed. For us as believers today, we're waiting for the return of Christ, a very real promise that we cling to. And every day and year that goes by, it seems like his promises are just not going to come to fruition. You know, every generation says, this is it, right? So-and-so invaded this country. Uh, look at who's, you know, having a meeting with whoever. This is it. Christ is coming now. And every generation just passes on by. With each new trial and suffering that comes our way, we cry out the Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? How long will it take to actually see this promise fulfilled? Let me read you one more quote from one of the commentators. I think he says it very well. He says, What Moses eventually learned, all believers have had to learn for themselves. So here's what Moses had to learn, and here's what we have to learn as well. God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. And his idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. How many of us have had to learn that the hard way, the long way? That God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. In my experience, rarely with my expectations, but nonetheless, only sometimes coincides. And his idea of the hardships that we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. God, I can't take any more. He says, yeah, you can. I'll hold you through more. Just as in Exodus 5, so also in 2 Samuel 5, Luke 24, 2 Peter 3. God's plans, they don't always unfold exactly how we would expect them to. The question then is, well, does that mean that God has now failed to keep his word? That he has uh, forgotten about his plan? That he's changed his plan? Well, of course not. We can always trust God. We can always trust his word and his promises. The entire Bible testifies to God's faithfulness. I mean, I just gave two from you know, the story of David and, and, and Luke 24. But you could find dozens of stories in the Old Testament where God has been faithful to keep his promise, even when everybody around him says, boy, I don't know, it doesn't look like anything's happening here. Where is God? And yet God comes in and he proves himself faithful. Just with Moses, it's the same today. The life of following after God is filled with seasons where the promises of God seem delayed or derailed. You may have, the, you know, the sort of the, the Moses approach to it. I didn't sign on for this. You ever ask, you ever say your, that to yourself? 
you think back on your life of following Christ and you think, boy, I, didn't, I don't feel like I signed on for this. I didn't agree to these trials that would come along. I didn't agree to go down that path. I never wanted to live over there. I never wanted to have that job. I never wanted to go to that place. And yet that's where God has taken us. And despite the fact that we've been told exactly what God will do, big picture, we know Jesus is coming back, we can often find ourselves questioning God, just like Moses did. God, why have you brought me here? God, it looks like you haven't delivered us at all. I mean, I think that's common for us as believers. You think about it, sort of using the phraseology of, of Moses, God, we aren't one inch closer to being in heaven with you than we were to start out with. Jesus, you haven't, you haven't come any closer to bringing us home. And so we question. And I think it's okay to question God as long as we come away with the right answer. Right? Questions without the right answer are no use at all. It's okay to question God as long as we come away with the right answer. And what is God's answer to Moses? Well, we'll see it in detail in chapter 6 next week. God's going to come in and say, look, Moses, here's what I'm doing. And it's sort of a, just a reminding of what he's already said. But I think also God's answer to Moses is actually our main idea from today. I think God is saying, hey, Moses, you can trust my faithful word even when my promises may seem delayed to you or derailed to you. You can still trust my promises. Because here's the reality. God's timing is perfect. Amen to that. Uh, God's plan is perfect. Amen to that. But our understanding is flawed. And so when it seems like everything is falling apart or just getting worse, despite everything we know about God's promises, we must not lose heart. Just remain faithful. Continue to trust in the Lord. Because the very same David who spent 15 or 20 so years hiding and running and fighting all these things, waiting on God to answer him. If you fast forward later in his life in 2 Samuel 22, here's how David describes the Lord. He says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. If anybody had any standing to say, boy, God just took forever, and that plan wasn't anything like I would have chosen, I wanted to be king right away, and all the horrors I had to go through, all the suffering I had to go through. If anybody could say that, I think it would be David, and yet how does he describe this experience with God? This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Moses is learning this, and we are as well by God's grace. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are mindful that um, even our best laid plans often are uh, swept aside. Even our best intentions are often swept aside and replaced with your perfect plan, your perfect intention. And so the challenge for us is, as believers, to align our expectations with what you're actually doing, to calm our anxieties that want to sort of run around and say everything's falling apart, to be reminded, as David says, your plan, your way is perfect. Your word is true. We see it in the life of Moses. We pray that we would also see it in our own lives as we experience 
the, the promises of God seeming like they're delayed, seeming like they're derailed. We pray, Father, that you would give us grace to understand, build our faith so that we can stand stronger on what we know to be true from the scriptures, that we can trust you. Every promise that you have made will be fulfilled. Every good intention you have us, you have for us will come to fruition. Everything that you plan to do will be done for your glory and for our good. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.